have to confess to you all that <clears throat> I woke up Monday morning just a little melancholy. All the Cadbury eggs and peeps had been eaten. No, uh, nobody eats peeps. Who eats peeps? Um, I woke up a, just a little melancholy. It was a fleeting feeling because no sooner had the feeling of Easter is over occurred to me that the Lord reminded me that Christ is risen. And it's as true this Sunday as it was last Sunday. That reality is the basis for the hope that all Christians have. It's the basis for the hope that all Christians have had for 2,000 years, including an unlikely Christian by the name of Paul, who went from persecuting Christians to writing most of our New Testament, including the book of Romans, which we're going to dive back into today. So if you would open up uh, the book of Romans, you can open up to chapter one. Our official text is chapter two, verses one through 11. But we're going to go back. We need to read and summarize a little bit of what has come before it to understand exactly what it is that Paul's after when he gets to Romans 2. So we've heard at least three sermons where Romans 1.16 has been referenced. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We've defined what it is we should believe that God reconciles unrighteous sinners to himself through the death and resurrection of his son. We've defined belief as something more than just intellectual assent. And we've explained the thing from which or the person from whom we need saving, namely God himself. Pastor Mark did a fantastic job over the last couple of sermons in Romans, hammering home sin and judgment. We read in chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then a large portion of Mark's most recent sermon was spent discussing precisely how some of these folks suppressed the truth. So Paul gives us some specific examples. He calls out homosexuality. For instance, he says in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Now, I personally believe here that Paul's condemnation of homosexuality is not just a condemnation of homosexuality, but a condemnation of all sexual sin. So you could add to this fornication and adultery and lust, and they would fit right into what he had to say. And I say that not to downplay the significance of the sin of homosexuality, but help us see that all sexual sin is condemned and to raise the severity level with which we view sexual sin in general. All sexual sin which encompasses any sexual thoughts or actions outside the context 
of marriage is outside of godliness and righteousness and truth and is therefore equally deserving of God's wrath. But Mark helpfully showed us that Paul is not just talking about sexual sin. Look at chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. These sinners were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Of course, this isn't even intended to be an exhaustive list, but Paul is making the point that all sin, all sin is condemned. He singles out sexual sin, even specific sexual sin, but then he lists a sort of greatest hits of sin. Every possible way in which a human being can fall short is condemned because all sin is a suppression of truth by unrighteousness and is deserving of God's wrath. So that's the the groundwork that we've laid so we can dive into chapter 2. So let's read chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. And it's no accident that every person in this room is here today. Father, we've enjoyed a time of worship when we've lifted up praises to you for who you are. We've confessed the reality of who we are, namely that we are sinners. And we thank you for your great mercy to us as shown in Christ on the cross. So Father, now as we come to your word, your word that is convicting and motivating and the very bread of life, Father, we pray that you would give us the appetite to eat that bread. We can't do that on our own. We can't even 
sit and listen long enough, let alone understand it and apply it to our lives without the work of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray now to you that your son's name would be glorified and that the Spirit would apply your word to us in our lives here today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul is up to something really clever here. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, he's on a tear condemning sin, but he's condemning the sin of a particular group. If you were a Jew reading Romans 1 or hearing Romans 1 read, it would be unmistakable to you that in Romans 1, chapter 1, Paul is condemning the Gentiles. He calls the Gentiles out for suppressing the truth. Truth that was readily available to them. Romans 1.19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And then in verse 20, they are without excuse. So Paul's point is that the Gentiles know enough truth not to sin the way that they are, and they're suppressing that truth. They know this truth from general revelation, what God has made evident to everyone from creation. When you look at Paul's list in chapter 1, 29 through 31, he even explicitly calls out some of the Ten Commandments. So he hits covetousness, commandment number 10, malice, commandment number 6, envy, commandment number 10, murder, commandment number 6, strife, commandment number 6, deceit, commandment number 9, haters of God, potentially commandments 1 through 3, disobedience to parents, commandment number 5. Faithless, commandment numbers one and two. And you could probably argue for more, but I think those are the ones that are really obvious. So if you're a Jewish Christian and you're one of the ones who's received God's special revelation in the scriptures, you're hearing Paul condemn the Gentiles and their sin. What's your response? You're sitting there and you're like, yeah, Paul, you tell them, you go get them. I can't believe those Gentiles in their sin, breaking commandments left and right. Paul anticipates this response. So in chapter two, he makes a brilliant turn. He's almost like a parent who's disciplining two children. But the second one doesn't know that he's in trouble yet. And so child one is getting railed on by mom or dad. And child two is standing there going, yep, that's right. You deserve it. You've got what's coming to you. But in chapter chapter 2, Paul turns to the Jews. He turns to the other kid and he says, now it's your turn. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, therefore you, and that therefore is pointing back to chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. So Paul is saying, on the basis of the fact that God judges unrighteousness, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I want to be completely transparent from the outset. When he's talking to the Jews here, I think that this actually applies to most of us in the room. And I know I'm constantly reminding us of the fact that we're Gentiles, but the comparison here for us in America, in a church in 2019, isn't between Gentiles and Jews. It's between the irreligious and the religious. 
So those of us who professed Christ and come to church regularly and tell people that we are Christians, we're the religious. We are the people that Paul is taking to task here in chapter 2. In his context, it was the Jews, but in our context, it's most of us in this room. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So the Gentiles, the irreligious, they're rightly judged for their sin. No one is denying that. But do we, the religious, look at Romans 1, 18 through 32 and say, I can't believe that people live that way in such disgusting sin. Do we condemn others without first recognizing our own sin? Do we look at those Paul calls out as deserving of God's wrath without recognizing that we are equally deserving of God's wrath? If we do, verse 3 does not bode well for us. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer is, you won't. So Paul is calling out the hypocrite. How do we manifest such hypocrisy? Well, do we look at our own lives and cherry pick some of the sins that Paul mentioned and say, well, I don't do that. Do we do that in order to make ourselves feel better or downplay the sin that actually is in our lives? Paul gives a pretty good, but not comprehensive list of sins. And I look at this list and if I'm honest, I see myself in the list. Covetousness, foolish, faithless. I mean, that's me. But let's say that by some stroke of luck and discipline in your morality, you look at this list and somehow you can navigate that list without av- and, and avoid all of the landmines that Paul mentions and come out on the other end of that and say, I'm not guilty of any of those sins. So you read chapter two, verse three. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? The very same things mentioned in verse two. And you say, well, I don't do any of those things. So I'm good. But let's be really clear here. When Paul says very same things, he's not pointing to this list and saying, if you don't do the things on that list, then you're good. He's saying, if you sin unrepentantly and condemn others for sinning and suppose that you will escape the judgment of God, you are sorely mistaken. Unrepentant is a key word here, and we'll see this in a minute. So do we compare ourselves to others that we perceive to be sinners and say, well, I don't sin in that particular way, so I'm good. Do we say, well, sure, I have this own sin, my own sin over here that I'm completely enslaved to, but I go to church and I read my Bible and I'm generally a pretty nice person, so I'm good. Homosexuality, for example, Paul calls it out and it's a sin. Absolutely. But do we look at folks who commit that particular sin and say, well, at least I'm not like that. Are we like the Pharisee in Jesus's parable in Luke 18, who trusted in himself that he was righteous and treated others with contempt? And right from Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Is that, is that us? Are we keeping a list of all the things that we do that supposedly honor God while unrepentantly judging those other sinners? Of course, the irony of this parable is that the tax collector is the one who's praised. It says, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus tells us that the tax collector was justified and not the Pharisee. Why? Because instead of unrepentantly judging sin, the tax collector humbly begs God for mercy. So if you like to take notes and you want to write down points, I guess point number one from verses one through three would be that God judges religious hypocrites. God judges religious hypocrites. Hypocrites, And that's what Paul is showing us as he transitions here from the Gentiles to the Jews. So moving on. If you assume that you will escape the judgment of God, look in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In context, Paul is accusing the Jews of banking on their special relationship with God to save them. And if you understand the history that played out in Scripture, you know that the Jews have been doing that since the very beginning. In fact, this morning, um, I usually teach CGG, but since I was preaching today, I got a break. So I got to go and sit in uh, Tim's class with the the school-age kids, which was a real treat. And we actually talked about this. We talked about the pattern A, B, C, D, E. I hope I can get this right. The people fall into apostasy, which leads to bondage, which then leads them to cry out to the Lord, who then provides a deliverer, which leads to a time of ease. And they repeat that cycle over and over again. And over again. And it spirals and it gets progressively worse. To the point where at one point they are a great nation. And their sin eventually leads them to becoming a completely displaced people. My point is they should know better. Even though the Jews were God's chosen people. The consequence of their sin has been judgment. And now Paul is saying that if they unrepentantly judge others, they presume upon God's grace, his kindness and forbearance and patience, failing to recognize that all of this is meant to lead to one thing, and that is repentance. So second point of the sermon is that God judges with patience. He judges with patience and kindness and forbearance in order to give us every opportunity to repent and turn from our sin. We see this also in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 
It tells us that God is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As non-Jews, we're not presuming on some sort of special relationship with God. So what does this mean? What could this mean for us? For us to presume upon God's kindness and forbearance and patience without repenting is to presume upon a supposed faith that doesn't actually exist. Cultural Christianity is beginning to die in this country, and I say to it, good riddance. But we live in an area where it's still really hanging on. And I regularly talk to people who say that they're Christians, who say that they believe in Jesus, who say that they have faith, but they don't evidence that faith in any real way. They don't demonstrate repentance. Many of us made professions of faith in our past, and we bank upon that. We say, well, you know, I grew up in the church, and when I was eight, I walked an aisle, and I said a prayer, and even though there's been no evidence in my life whatsoever that I believe that stuff, I'm good. Sometimes I'll even have someone who knows the Bible just a little bit, and they'll say, well, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, it's just a matter of confessing those words. That's it. Magic words. That verse has to be one of the top 10 verses taken completely wildly out of context. People use that verse to support this idea of easy believism. This idea that if you simply believe intellectually some truths about Jesus, not even necessarily everything the Bible has to say about Jesus, but if I believe some truths about Jesus and I said some magic prayer at some point in my life, then I'm good. The problem is that verse, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That verse is Romans 10, 9. And I can assure you that Paul did not change his mind by the time he got from chapter 2 to chapter 10. And in chapter 2, he says that those who don't repent presume upon the patience of God. That very patience is meant to lead us to repentance. That's the point. Jesus came the first time in mercy, but he will come a second time and he will come to judge. You see, God's patience is not like his power or his presence. It has a very real limit. Look in verse five. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. At some point, God will no longer judge with patience. At some point, judgment is coming. Every good thing that God gives us is meant to point us to him. His kindness is meant to turn our eyes to him. And we, when we fail to properly do that, we make idols out of his gifts and we worship the creator, the created rather than the creator, as it says in chapter one. We distort the purpose of God's kindness and we turn it into sin. When we turn God's kindness into idols, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. 
As we fail to repent, our hypocrisy grows and so does the wrath that we're storing up. And ultimately what this boils down to is that we fail to fear God. We look at his kindness and patience and forbearance and fail to recognize that he is also a righteous judge who must judge our sin. And our failure to fear God here and repent holds in contempt and makes a mockery of his goodness to us. And Paul says this is because of our hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart. We need to change that heart of stone. And he'll go into this in more detail later in this chapter. But we need a circumcised heart. Our heart must be changed by the Holy Spirit. That is the basis of our repentance. We can't merely say that we believe. We can't merely intend to follow Jesus. We must repent and truly follow him. He must become the Lord of our lives. And on the day of wrath, his judgment will be revealed and it will be too late. So when, when will that time come for you? When will that time come for me? Will Jesus come back? Will we die first? Either way, at that point, it's too late. So I implore you, as Paul does here, don't presume upon the patience and kindness and forbearance of God. He is patient. He is kind. He does forbear. But judgment is coming. Repent that you might store up for yourself grace and mercy and not wrath. So point one is that God judges the religious hypocrite. Point two is God judges with patience. We shouldn't presume upon God's patience by hypocritically judging other sinners. We humbly acknowledge that we are sinners. We repent. So point three, God judges impartially. God judges impartially. So make no mistake, judgment is coming. The day of God's wrath is on the horizon and his righteous judgment will be revealed. But when it comes, what's the standard of his judgment? What is the measuring stick by which all of mankind will be judged? So look in verse 6. He will render to each according to his works. Wait, what? Aren't we always talking about God's grace and that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves and God chooses and we're only saved on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross? Aren't we always saying Christianity is not a works-based religion? If God is going to render to us according to our works, why aren't we out there working really hard trying to save ourselves? When Paul says that God will render to each one according to his works, he is not saying that we are saved by our works. He is not saying that we are saved by our works. I want to state that unequivocally and then try to help us see what it is that he is saying. But personally, when I read this, that, that knee-jerk reaction of, hold on a second, works? I find that incredibly sobering because I consider what it means to have judgment rendered to me according to my works, and that scares me to death. An infant has a better chance of summoning Everest than I do of saving myself by my works. In my flesh, by very nature, makes it impossible. But I think this is good. 
I think it's good for us to reflect on, reflect on what a works-based salvation would look like and be humbled by the impossibility of it. Then we understand what Paul is saying here. We can appreciate it even more. So how do we know that Paul isn't saying here that salvation is based on works? Well, lots of ways. Take some of Paul's own words. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says it like three different times in this one passage. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Grace, not works. Romans three twenty eight. One chapter down the road. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are just a few references. The clear testimony of scripture in general and from Paul himself is that we are saved by faith. Not by works, not of our own doing, but from God. We are justified by faith through Jesus Christ. But Paul is not contradicting himself here in Romans chapter 2. So how do we understand what he's saying when he says that God will render to each one according to his works? Let's keep reading. Verse 6. He will render each one, to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. So let's acknowledge This harsh reality that we just read. Eternal life for some, wrath and fury for others. Judgment is a reality. Hell exists and some of us are going to go there. I don't think that Paul is telling us that salvation is based on works. But I think it seems clear that he's saying that those who are saved will do good Works. Those who are saved will be those who, by patience in well doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. We will do good and we will receive that glory and honor and eternal life. Those who aren't saved will be characterized by self seeking and disobedience and they will receive wrath and fury. In order to understand what Paul is after here, we have to understand the basis of our good works. Where do they come from? In verse 6, Paul is quoting Psalm 62, which we actually read some of earlier. So in Psalm 62, we see in verses 1 and 2 from David, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. And then verses 5 through 8. 
For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then in verse 12, we get, For you will render to a man according to his works. David helps us here because he shows us that this work flows out of a reliance on God, a resting in God. For those who rest in God, for those who abide in God, the natural overflow of that abiding is good works. In other words, good works don't save, but those who are saved will do good works. Good works don't save, but those who are saved will do good works. And the source of those good works is God. We're not justified by our good works, as Paul clearly says. We are justified by faith through Jesus Christ. But Romans 1.5 tells us that grace brings about obedience. Grace in the life of a believer saves through faith, and that believer then does good works out of an overflow of that grace in their life. So true believers will be characterized by good works and repentance. Repentance is key because we're not going to be perfect. Scripture never says that. We work and we'll fail, so we repent. And we work and we repent. Paul says in verse 7 that God will give eternal life to those who by patience, a better word to use here might be persistence, to those who by persistence seek for glory and honor and immortality. True believers are characterized by persistence in our works, not perfection in our works. This comes down to a matter of fruit. John 15, 1 through 6, Jesus speaking here. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Abiding in Jesus is the source of our fruit, of our good works. And just as the fruit of the vine is dependent on the vine as its source of life, so we are dependent on Jesus as our source of life. And when he says every branch that does not bear fruit, he's assuming there that, that we're not perfect, that every branch that doesn't bear fruit is pruned. There's discipline there. We're going to continue to sin and God is going to lovingly prune those areas in our life. Not all of our fruit is going to be good. 
But this discipline, this pruning is such clear evidence of God's care and love for us. It's also evidence that we're saved. But there is no question that we will bear fruit and it will be fruit that points back to Jesus, the true vine. What we won't do as true believers is consistently display fruit that points back to the devil as our source. If I showed you a tree covered in oranges and said, look at that beautiful apple tree, you would think that I was crazy. In the same way, if you are someone who professes to be a Christian, but you only produce the fruit of the devil, the inconsistency is just as stark. And Paul liked this imagery of fruit as well. He said in Romans 6, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. And I like the way he puts that there, the fruit you get. He recognizes that the source of the fruit is divine, Jesus Christ. The source of our fruit, our good works is not our own self-effort. We receive it. No, we're, we're not saved by works, but our works will be in keeping with the fact that we are saved. For those who abide in Christ, God will render according to our works. Works that reflect that abiding. And he will give eternal life. This is not works-based salvation. We can't take credit for our works or our fruit any more than the apple could take credit for itself. Our fruit is a product of the vine. God can render according to our works and it not be works-based salvation because he is rendering to us on the basis of our abiding in Christ. We can't take credit, but we can reap the benefits of Christ's work in us. Verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us that both judgment and salvation will come according to works to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verse 11, he explains the reason these come to the Jew first and also to the Greek is that God shows no partiality. God judges impartially. In this particular instance, when Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile, he's simply hammering home the point that being a Jew will not save you. Jew and Gentile alike are sinners. Religious and irreligious alike are sinners. To the hypocritical religious folks, Paul says there is no partiality. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter whether or not you grew up in the church. It doesn't ultimately matter that you made a profession of faith. God will render to each according to his works, regardless of your religiosity, your background, or your empty profession of faith. He is an impartial judge. He looks at the fruit of your life as evidence of whether or not you're saved, and he renders accordingly. So wrapping up, God judges the religious hypocrite. He judges patiently. He judges impartially. It doesn't matter if you're the irreligious sinner in Romans 1, 18 through 32, or the religious person that Paul mentions in the beginning of chapter 2. Judgment is coming. God is patient. 
He is patient, offering us opportunity after opportunity for us to repent and turn to him. But at some point, that patience is going to end. When will it end for you? Not to be morbid, but any one of us could drop dead right this instant or get in a car wreck on the way home. Anything can happen. You think our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka last week walked into their Easter service and thought to themselves, this is it. This is the moment I'm going to die. Death can come for any of us in an instance. And God is patient, but judgment is coming. Now, right now, is the time to repent and turn to Jesus. Don't presume upon God's patience. What about our works? If God judges impartially, rendering to each one of us according to our works, again, I find this incredibly sobering. We can all take this as an opportunity for self-reflection. It's possible that some of us worry about this too much, examining our lives and comparing it to the standard set forth in Scripture and beating ourselves up like Martin Luther did, sweating every teeny tiny inconsistency. That's possible, but in our culture, that is highly unlikely. We are far more likely to presume upon the grace of God, to bank our very lives on the empty promise of easy believism and some vague belief that we have in Jesus. Don't do it. Look at the fruit that is in your life. I'm not talking about perfection. That's not the standard. I always say that I think a Christian's life should look like a good stock. When you look back over your life in Christ, is the overall trend line of it progressing upward to become more like Christ? There are going to be peaks and valleys. You may not be more like Christ from one minute to the next, one day to the next, one month to the next. But can you look at your life and say, I am more dependent on him than I used to be. And I'm more like him than I used to be. If you can't say that, have you truly put your faith and hope and trust in Christ? Are you truly resting in him or are you simply presuming upon the patience of God? He loves you. His desire for you is that you would put your faith and hope and trust in him as the only one who can save you. He's calling right now, today. Believe in him. Trust in him. Rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we see the clear testimony of Scripture. What it tells us about our own hypocrisy, what it tells us about your patience. God, you are incredibly patient and kind and loving. But God, you are also a righteous judge. You judge sinners, be they out and out Gentile sinners or 
hypocritical religious sinners. You judge sin impartially. God, that is tough. That is hard to hear. What scripture says about us and our sin is not easy, but God, thank you that you have provided a way for us as sinners to be reconciled to you, a holy God. You sent your son. He died for us, a sacrifice, the blood from which covers the sins of all mankind. God, we beg you, we beg you to open the eyes and the hearts of any in this room who have not put their faith and hope and trust in Christ, recognizing that that means more than just saying some words and saying a prayer. It means true abiding. It means real trust. It means allowing Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And it leads to fruit. Fruit in the form of works that is evidence of our salvation. Father, help us to be careful when we reflect on our own hearts and our own lives, weighing whether or not we see evidence of salvation in our life. Not banking our hope on being saved by any works that we've done, but recognizing that those works are simply evidence of what you have already done in our hearts, justifying us and continuing to sanctify us in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue that work, that you would make those that you've justified more like Jesus, recognizing that we don't get the credit for that, that you get the glory for the work that you're doing in us through your Son as it's being worked out in us by the Spirit. Amen.